Heather, thanks for deciding to be here and instead of out there on a beautiful day and soon you'll get to enjoy the weather, but glad that you're here. And my name is Paul Buckley. I'm one of the pastors here and I get to speak and bring God's Word most Sundays. We are, as a church, going through uh, a series in the book of Malachi. Uh, for the most part, we spend our time as a church uh, on Sundays, part of our time, going through different books of the Bible. Uh, we find that the best way to kind of get the full menu that God wants for us is just to go through the, the whole Bible. So we're uh, currently in the book of Malachi. And hearing His Word is part of our worship. We come together to encounter God. That's really the core and the heart of our gathering on a Sunday, is to encounter God. And He's uh, given us His Word to help us to understand how we do that. We do that in song. We do that in sacrament. We do that through just being together and encouraging one another. But we do it through His Word, through the Scriptures as well, and hearing from God. And His Word is living and active. He speaks to us. And so that's our prayer and expectation this morning. As we are before His Word, He will speak to us. So we're in Malachi chapter 2. We'll be in verses 13 through 16. So you can turn there. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to have one in your hands if possible. We will project uh, for those who don't have a Bible as well. But while you're turning there, um, let me introduce our section with the story. Uh, who here has read or seen um, the movie, the book, the movie Pride and Prejudice? Good. I'm in, and there's a lot of guys out there. Good for you who've seen this. Uh, so in the series, uh, it's a it's a wonderfully written story, and uh, the three versions of the movie I've seen are all done really well. And there's this dramatic roller coaster romance between Darcy Fitzwilliams and Elizabeth Bennet. And if you know, uh, Darcy is from a very upper class, uh, aristocratic family. He's a good-looking uh, guy, obviously very wealthy, but a bit proud and socially awkward. And Elizabeth Bennet is from a, the lower end of upper-class society. She's not nobility. And she's this uh, strong, uh, attractive, intelligent, and outspoken uh, young woman. And Darcy falls in love with Elizabeth, um, not only for her attractive qualities, but because she's unafraid to speak her mind, even in social contexts where others might keep their mouths shut. Um, and he likes that. And so there's this dramatic moment in the, mo in the uh, movie, in the book, when Mr. Darcy tells Elizabeth of his desire to marry her. And, and even though at this point he's done nothing really to win her affection. Um, as a matter of fact, he is unaware that he has done everything to do just the opposite, to make her totally dislike him through the way that he's treated his, uh, her family and friends. And so he's unaware of that, and yet he shows up uh, kind of out of the blue uh, in the storyline and says in kind of classic uh, 18th, 19th century British English, uh, in vain I have struggled. I will not, uh, it will not do. My feelings will not be repressed. You must allow me to tell you how ardently I admire and love you. And so he just kind of puts it all on the table there in front of Elizabeth, and yet he's totally unaware of, of what's been going on from her perspective. And so Elizabeth replies, in such cases as this, it is, I believe, the established mode to express a sense of obligation for the sentiments avowed however unequally they may be returned. It is natural that obligation should be felt, and, and if I could feel gratitude, I would now thank you, but I cannot. I have never desired your good opinion, and you certainly have certainly bestowed it most unwillingly. Um, so that's a big ouch uh, at that point. 
And then it just gets worse because Darcy's trying to explain himself and, and kind of come across as noble and gracious in his you know, being forthright and everything and saying I'm an honest man and I don't hide my feelings. His, uh, and, and then he says, uh, I, nor am I ashamed of the feelings I related. They were natural and just. And then he goes on to, to kind of make it seem gracious that he's kind of stooping down to her lower social strata by saying, could you expect me to rejoice in the inferiority of your connections? To congratulate myself on the hope of relations whose condition in life is so decidedly beneath my own? He's like, oh man, <laughs> Darcy, what are you doing? Um, and, it's, and, and, and of course, Elizabeth responds to that. Um, you are mistaken, Mr. Darcy, if you suppose that the mode of your declaration... We learn in Malachi they're, they're experiencing economic trouble, they're experiencing uh, problems with crops and, and, and relationships and all sorts of things, health issues. There's things going on. It, it, it's, they're going through a lot of trials here. And there's not this sense of blessing that they're experiencing as a community. And so they're crying out to God and they're, they're covering the altars with tears as, as it says here. And, and yet, it's to no avail. They're perplexed. Why? Why wouldn't God respond to our prayers? He's told us to pray, and He's told us that He loves to respond to pray, prayer. And He's not responding. And why not? Uh, is He not responding to our offerings? We're, we're told to sacrifice thanksgiving to Him and, and bring these offerings, and that He would receive these offerings. And yet, He's not responding. So what's going on? And they're like Darcy in the story. They have no clue, at least up front, that they're deeply offending God. They're unaware that they're deeply insulting God because of how they are regarding marriage and how they are handling what they're doing about marriage. And God cares tremendously about marriage. It says here that God is witness between you and the wife of your youth. And that term is used a couple times here. The wife of your youth. And the idea this is your first love. This is the one you fell in love with and you decide that you're going to come together and be with each other for the rest of life before the Lord. And yet, you are faithless to the wife of your youth. You've betrayed all that. All those promises. All those good things. You've been faithless. And I'm the witness that I'm the one who's most concerned. I'm the one who's most aware of what's going on in your, in your marriage. And in your marriages. God is making them aware that He is the witness. He cares about how spouses relate to each other. Now, a little bit of context here in, in ancient history and in Israel. Um, in terms of marriages, the, the man was the only one that could divorce. Uh, the woman couldn't do that. That was part of how, how it was. And So in this passage, you see God addressing the husbands. And certainly husbands have a, a priority of responsibility in any marriage to this day. But also in, in this day, the, the husband was the one who had the legal recourse to pursue divorce. The wife didn't. So they're the ones who are ultimately failing here and God is going after the men. But I, by, I say that so we understand in our culture, it would be both spouses. These things would apply to both husband and wife. And so God is saying, I'm a witness between you and the wife of your youth. How you're treating her. I'm aware. I'm there. I see it. I'm present. I'm concerned. And the reason that you're not blessed by me is because I cannot pretend everything's okay when it's not okay at home. Because I care just about much about that context as every other context. And even more. I care about marriage. And this is consistent with Scripture actually. So this is true for the New Testament. Actually, Peter the Apostle tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3, 
He says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. And weaker in, in how God's positioned the woman and how He's created the husband and wife to operate. Showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. And then he says this, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Interesting. Very familiar. Similar to what we see in Malachi. New Testament context, guys, I'm witness to your marriage. And I'm a gracious Father. I want to bless you. But don't think that I'm going to bless you if you treat your wife these ways. That's what's being said here in 1 Peter. That's what's being said in Malachi. I uh, remember a friend telling me uh, as he contemplated some of these truths, he felt like God was teaching him to regard his wife as the daughter of God. That, that his wife is a daughter just as he's a son through Christ. His wife is a daughter. And what father wouldn't care about how his daughter gets treated? I know for me, if my daughter were married and she was being treated poorly by her husband, I would be very, very concerned. And I would do what I need to do to help in that case. And So how much more God? How much more does He care about how His daughter is treated? How His Son is treated too? And it's not just that, that, that He actually cares about marriage itself. And that's what this passage is teaching us. That God is the Creator of marriage. He's the inventor of the concept, of the reality. It's actually an eternal concept. It's from before time began. And he is the inventor of it, the chief proponent of it, the sustainer of it, and the ultimate object of it. Marriage in the, con- in the concept arena is eternal. It's an idea that is eternal from the very character of God. It is very important to God. Marriages between husband and wife here last as long as our lives last. That's God's plan. But the idea is from the eternal God. This is something that He cares about. He's introduced and it's... it's so important. And it's really fundamental to humanity. It's not an optional thing here. It's fundamental to humanity. When God makes male and female, when He makes mankind actually in His image, He makes them male and female. Now, that means every male and every female does image God independently as a male or female. But the context in Genesis is that He's making Adam and Eve who are a couple. They're to be together as male and female. And so when God wants to image Himself, when He wants to reflect what He's like in His goodness and glory to the world, He says, this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to make man in My image, but I'm going to make them male and female. I'm going to do this unique thing. I'm going to make them complementary in who they are, how they're made biologically and otherwise, and in roles. And then I'm going to call them to be together as a couple. And that's how I'm going to image myself. I will image myself through individuals indeed. So if you're single, you don't have to be married to image God. But don't go the other side and say marriage doesn't matter. Marriage matters tremendously because the original context, again, in creating them male and female is to put them together as a couple to image God. And so God cares about this. Genesis chapter 1. God creates man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him male and female. He created them. And then in Genesis chapter 2, it says, "...in the rib that the Lord God took had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she is taken out of a man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And so the 
the imaging of God is in the context of this union of husband and wife. It shows the character of God. And, and one of the things I think it does in that is it shows in this union, this is a profound union. Paul says in Ephesians 5, it's a profound mystery. It's a profound union. And it images the union, I believe, of the Trinity. It's God showing what He's like. He's relational. And it's not just enough to make humanity as imagers of Him in terms of their creativity and that they can think and perceive truth and they can be creative with that and all those faculties and so forth that are part of being human. It's not enough. God also wants to show that He's intensely relational. And there's an intimacy that He has in the Trinity and He has an intimacy that He's calling humanity into. That's profound. And can only be fully expressed really until heaven in a marriage. So marriage matters to God. Marriage is about God imaging Himself, showing what He's like, showing his, all of His characteristics in this intensely relational context called marriage. And so Paul says in, in line with this in Ephesians 5, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. He's comparing now the, the Jesus and the church in a husband and wife. And then in verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's our verse from Genesis, right? Genesis chapter 2. And then he says, this mystery is profound. This mystery of a man and a woman coming together, being joined in intimacy as a couple, it's a profound mystery. It's mind-blowing. It's showing things that are deep and, and, and not fully perceived. And then he says, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. If you read through this, you're like, what is Paul talking about? Is he talking about marriage between a man and a woman? Or is he talking about Christ in the church? Yes. Both. And marriage is this profound picture of the relationship of God with His people. And He calls us into this intimate, deeply intimate relationship with Him that is mirrored in marriage. Marriage puts on display what God is like relationally and what He has done for us in Christ in drawing us to Himself. And there's a union we have as the church in Christ that's a profound and, and intimate, deeply intimate. And so Paul is instructing husbands and wives here to live in light of this. And then so he finishes in verse 33, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let each couple mirror this eternal, glorious, divine idea that comes from God. Marriage is about God. And we see in our passage in Malachi other aspects of this. He says in verse 15, did did He not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And by the way, there are some different ways to translate from the original language. There are some challenging portions in this section of Malachi. I, I believe uh, that the ESV has it really good, so that's why I'm teaching from that. If you have any questions on that as you read in your Bible, it's worded slightly different, I'd love to answer those afterwards. So I think the right way to translate this is as it is in the ESV. Did He not make them one? Speaking of the husband and wife. Make them one. Bring them together. With a portion of the Spirit in their union. Isn't that amazing? With a portion of the Spirit in their union. 
That God has made the man and the woman and, and has called all in all marriages men and women to come together in marriage. And that He's invested that marriage with a portion of His Spirit. Every marriage God is involved in. Every marriage He is a witness to. Every marriage He is a creator of. Every marriage He is interested in seeing succeed. He's actively involved in all true marriages. Marriage is about God. And He's invested His Spirit, a portion of the Spirit, in their union. That's a reality. So every marriage is dignified by this truth as well as the others we've talked about. He's there to bring blessing. He's there to bring His presence. He's for that marriage. He's actively involved in all true marriages. He makes the couple in their union with a portion of His Holy Spirit. So think about that. Think about all that we've talked about. What Malachi is saying. Your marriage isn't first about you. Your marriage isn't first about your spouse. Your marriage is not even first about you as a couple, nor first about your kids. Your marriage is first about God and what He wants to do in and through your marriage. He cares about your marriage. He cares about marriage. And this applies not just to those who are married, by the way. We all need to understand that He thinks this way. He cares about these things. And so if you're single, to regard marriage with honor, whether He's called you into that or not, to understand that's something He loves. And to understand that the ultimate marriage is not the earthly one. That's only a picture of the ultimate marriage. The ultimate marriage is the heavenly one. With God in this intimacy and in this joy and in this union that is just beyond anything we could ever imagine. The very, very best marriage that you would ever see on this earth is merely a faint picture of what we're going to have when we're with Him. And so, singles honor marriage here and look forward to that final marriage where we will experience the fulfillment of earthly marriage. So Malachi is trying to bring truth to the people of God here to wake them up so they see God. To wake them up so that they change. So To wake them up out of their spiritual slumber into life in God. And so, He's calling them to wake up and see God in regards to marriage. So when our marriages are struggling, it's because we've lost sight of these truths. We've lost sight of God in our marriage. And the answer for a struggling marriage, every struggling marriage, whatever level of struggle, and all marriages struggle, is to look to God. To make it about God. To trust in Him. To look to Him for His help. So, let me ask you, have you made marriage about something else primarily? Have you made marriage about your needs being fulfilled? Have you made marriage even about your love for your spouse? Or their love for you? Have you made marriage about your kids? Have you made marriage about keeping up appearances or routines? Have you made marriage about friendship merely? Or sex? or romance, or a comfortable home. All those things have their proper place. Have you made your marriage first about something else besides God? And Malachi and God is calling you through Malachi 
to repent and return to God. And how do you do that? You set your sights on God, not your marriage. You look at your marriage and you say, yep, this is, I got it wrong. But you don't stay there. You put your eyes on God who is the author of marriage and the God who loves us and has sent His Son for us to re- redeem us and rescue us from living otherwise. And to know that His pursuit of marriage is so intense that He has sent His own Son. He has come as God in the flesh and, and has gone to the cross with His righteous life and died the horrors of a billion hells on that cross bearing your sin to pay for all your sins so that you could be forgiven through faith in Him for your failings in marriage and all your failings. And in Him have forgiveness and life and fresh power and an intimate relationship with Him in the ultimate marriage so that your earthly marriage can be rescued. He's for you. He loves you. So don't hear this as something to make you go away thinking, oh no, I'm what a dope, what a failure, and I'll never be able to do anything. Or maybe your marriage has failed. To live in that and regret. But receive the forgiveness. Receive His grace. Receive His love for you and your marriage and His commitment to help you according to His Word. So repent and return to God in all these truths. And make it first about God. Marriage is about God. Marriage is also a gift. God is here uh, witnessing to them. He's the witness in their marriage. Uh, and it's really about the quality of their marriage. And, and they, they have compromised their marriages. They have lowered their standards. They've stopped looking, looking at God and they're looking at other things. And they're not seeing the gift that He intends it to be. It's a gift that's meant to, to be a blessing and to overflow. Marriage is a gift. And there's lots of things that are said in in this passage that give us a picture of what marriage is supposed to be. How God sees it. So He calls, and I've already talked about, the the wife of your youth. That that marriage should continue to be something that you experienced when you were young. When you were first in love and you thought, wow, this person is so wonderful. I just want to be with her the rest of my life. I want to be with him the rest of my life. The wife of your youth, there's a reason He uses this. You betrayed that is what he's addressing. But he's calling them in that to return to that. To return to that level of affection and enjoyment and devotion. And then he says, he calls her your companion. This is a word that, that uh, can mean your partner, your soulmate. So your wife, there's supposed to be this intimate relationship, this friendship that's there. That, that your spouse is to be your companion. Your closest companion, really. There should be this wonderful relationship. And then also, it, he says in verse 14, you've been faithless, though she is your companion, and your wife by covenant. So there's a covenant here. A covenant is a solemn agreement that involves mutual obligations and blessings to be only broken by something like death. And this is a covenant unlike any other human covenant because it leads to a covenantal union, a profound mystery, a profound union between a man and a woman. And God makes them one. He makes this union. It's a solemn, lifelong agreement meant for care and blessing. 
but it is an intimate joining of two human beings made to complement each other according to God's biological design to produce in the union a profound reflection of deep and eternal divine truth. It's this glorious divine union in this covenant. And it involves intimacy at the deepest level. That's the intention here. So these words, companion, wife of your covenant, one, union, is painting a picture of deep, deep intimacy. An intimacy that is deep and broad. It's deeper and broader really than any other human relationship. That's the intention. That's the model. That's the goal here. That's God's expectation. That's what He's for. That's what He wants to build. Intimacy that's deep and broad. It's intimacy socially, physically, economically, relationally, spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, sexually, functionally, practically. Every way, it's this intimacy that mirrors the intimacy of the Trinity itself and the intimacy that we will have with Christ in heaven. In other words, guys, you cannot get closer to heaven without actually being there except for in marriage. That's what's being taught here. That's what's in Scripture. That's the ideal God has for marriage. It is a profound taste of heaven. It's to reflect the infinitely glorious intimacy of our triune God and the consummated church in heaven with Jesus. That's part of the blessing here. That's worth fighting for. That's worth repenting of other standards and running back to God for. God wants to do this in our lives. And and also there's blessing here. It says in verse 15, what was the one God seeking? As He did all these things, what was He after? Certainly to mirror who He is, to bless and to have enjoyment, but also He was seeking godly offspring. God has determined that this would be the context where He would raise godly offspring. That marriage would be the place where He would raise children who would know and love the truth, who would see in their parents a picture of truth lived out. A picture of the love and intimacy of God Himself. What He's like. How they love each other. What's it like to be in the church? How... how Husband and wife relate to each other as a picture of Jesus and His church. So that they would be raised up seeing these things, that it would have an effect in their life as their parents love them and nurture them and guide them and instruct them, that they would end up as godly offspring, coming to the Lord. That they would be raised up. And then He wants to take their lives and, and send them as ambassadors into a needy world. Psalm 127 talks about uh, the man who's has lots of children being like a man with a quiver full of arrows. What do you do with arrows? Do you keep them in the quiver? No, you fire them out. And the idea is that God would use marriages that are according to His plan by His grace to raise up godly offspring that they might be sent out to bless others. In some cases, to be married to others and to be blessings there and to be ambassadors of His truth and love to the world. That's His design. That's what Malachi is teaching us. He wants godly offspring. I'm sure some of you know the story of Jonathan Edwards and his wife Sarah. Jonathan Edwards was an 18th century pastor and probably, probably the best, uh, the most brilliant American theologian ever. Um, and they had a wonderful marriage. And if you know their story, they were not easy people. Um, often, high capacity people are high maintenance people. Uh, and really, they were both high maintenance, but they worked on their marriage. And they wonderfully complimented each other. 
Very gifted, both of them. Um, both strong people, too, if you read their stories. It took work, but they worked on their marriage and, and, and they depended on God and they saw great fruit in their children. Wonderful, wonderful legacy. God used them to bring up many godly offspring. It, it wasn't perfect, by the way. Uh, they, not all their offspring were godly. But by and large, they had a profound impact and their descendants have included 13 college presidents, 65 professors, 100 lawyers, a dean of a law school, 30 judges, 66 physicians, a dean of a medical school, 80 holders of public office, three U.S. senators, mayors of three large cities, governors of three states, one vice president, one comptroller of the United States Treasury, all from their union. Isn't that amazing? God used them in their weakness as they pursued His goal and standard for marriage to produce godly offspring. So, what do we do with this truth? What do we do with these truths that, that marriage is a gift that overflows and gives to others? Well, first, we need to just receive it as a gift. It's a good thing. It's a gift. It's a good thing. And we're to pursue it as a gift. Whether we're married or not, by the way, the culture that we live in right now is pretty down on marriage. It has a low view of marriage. And it's, it's affecting the culture. It's confused. Our culture is confused on even what, it, what marriage is. And they're negative on marriage. And so, the trend is not to get married. It's no wonder that many people wait well into their 30s or never get married when the culture has such a low view of marriage. But God doesn't have a low view of marriage. God loves marriage. God's for marriage. God designed marriage. God recommends marriage. God is in marriages. He's for you. He's with you. He's provided grace. So if God has a high view of marriage, we should as well. We should honor it and not settle for less. We should build our marriages. We should seek to help each other grow in our marriages because of how God thinks about marriage and because that God is for our marriages. So we lift up the view of marriage in our lives and in our church. We see it with the value that God places on it and marriage as defined by God is a good and glorious thing that we should be proud of and eager for and desperately seeking His grace in. And the gift of children. This wonderful gift that gives children should, I think, lead us to receive children as just a wonderful gift from God. And, and it's just wonderful to be a church with children in it. I want us always to be a church that is, just loves having children and enjoys hearing their voices uh, and, and just doesn't ever like freak out. Will someone make those children be quiet back there? No. That's a wonderful sound. There's children. God's giving us children. They're a gift. And He wants to work in their lives. So we receive children. Peg and I are expecting our second grandchild in a couple weeks. Uh, and we're excited. And I hope that we as a church all live that way, that we, we love having children. And not only that, not only do we feel that, but we're eager to help parents with children. Um, and a word to parents with children. We're so glad that God's blessed you with children. We're so glad for that gift. It comes from Him. And God decides how that happens and when. It's a gift from Him. We're glad for His blessing on you. And we also know you need help. We're not going to throw ourselves at you, but I know when Peg and I were in uh, that season of life, we desperately needed help. And, and I would just want to avail to you our help, the rest of the church, 
to come alongside and to support you to, to those who can to help with babysitting um, so that you can get a date night or some night just to go out or just some time to relax. We want to honor children by helping you. We want to help you also as you parent. And so we as a church offer parenting seminars and classes. And, and sometimes the best way that can happen is just getting together with somebody casually. Let's talk about kids. What, do you, what did you guys do? And by the way, we're not going to come, at least I know Peg and I don't feel this way. We don't have a formula. I wish we had a formula. Uh, here's the formula. Jesus. Um, that's the best I can, can give. Um, but we can give advice and we can tell you what worked, what we learned. God's given us His Word. There's more than there's parameters there. Um, but ask for that and, 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 and let us walk together to raise children and look for help. Pastoral counseling as you need it. Seminars. And if you need to form a, a young parent's Bible group or social group just to support each other, that would be fantastic. These are ways that we can apply what we're learning from God's Word here and the, the blessing of marriage and the blessing of children. Finally, marriage must be guarded. Two times in this passage, they are told, so guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. In light of all this, in light of how God cares about this, guard yourself. Guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. The particular part of their faithlessness was not only neglecting to maintain their marriages and pursue the growth and deepening of their marriages, but, but to do just the opposite. They were divorcing. And they were divorcing over apparently frivolous reasons. There are times when divorce is the better alternative when there's been some very, very serious sin like infidelity and, or abandonment. And that divorce is the option there. That's the better option. The better of, of worse options in some ways. So it has its place, but, uh, and, and we want to help you if you've been through that or facing that to, to walk biblically and to, if possible, rescue your marriage. But that's not what's going on here. It's not the severe cases. They, they are just fervently divorcing because, well, I just don't feel like I did when it was the wife of my youth. And there's someone else over here who's more attractive. It might even been that the intermarriage with the other groups was part of all this. And so God addresses that and, and He says, you know, guard yourself and do not do this. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Now that may not makes sense right away. It's a, somewhat of an idiom from the day. And I think it relates to the picture in the book of Ruth, actually, where Boaz uh, redeems Ruth to be his wife by covering her with his garments. So she is without a husband. Her husband has died. She, in that culture especially, uh, that was a very vulnerable place to be. Boaz is this godly man. And the expression, the biblical expression for them at the time, um, to say, basically, I, I want to cover you and care for you, provide for you as my wife, is he covers her with his garments. So here, what's going on is not like Boaz. It's covering with garment with violence. So you are doing violence to the marriage. You are doing violence to this what ought to be this caring for your wife, extending yourself to protect her and bring her in and create this, this union. You're doing the opposite. You're bringing violence in there with divorce. The Lord is concerned about that. And so He says, guard yourselves in your spirits and do not be faithless. It's interesting how He says, guard yourselves in your spirits. He doesn't, he doesn't just say, don't do it. 
He says, go to the level before the don't doing to guard your heart because you do what you do out of your heart. And so you ought to think and feel the right things about marriage. You ought to feed your heart with your thoughts that you should have right thoughts and truthful thoughts and glorious thoughts about marriage. You should have your eyes lifted up as you see what God wants and what He would want in and through your marriage. You should lift them off of where you're looking and these other alternatives. And there are so many alternatives out there, guys, to take you away from what God would want to do in and through your marriage. So many things that you need to guard your heart from. But it's all possible as you set your eyes on the Lord. His grace is sufficient. You are not alone. He, you have all that you need in Him. So look to Him. Set your eyes on Him. Let your mind be filled with these truths we're looking at. And have your heart changed. Have your heart burn for a godly marriage like we see here. So that you run after that. You guard your heart by doing those things. And your life follows with that. You guard your heart by remembering the Gospel daily. Remembering that you have been forgiven so, so much in Jesus. He died for you and you were not worthy in any way. You were left yourself and your natural self His enemy. I was His enemy. and he, Yet He died. He pursued. He purchased us by His blood. And we are forgiven of very much. So now in that truth, knowing I'm forgiven of so much, I can turn around and forgive my spouse and release her from any sense of obligation I would have over her to forgive her. And now my heart is free and I can say, Lord, help me to love my wife like You love the church, Jesus. Guard your hearts and do not be faithless. Let's do all we can as a people to guard our hearts. To have the marriages that God wants for us. To understand that this is worth pursuing together. It is so worth it. I know for any parent here, if your child were sick, if your child had a serious sickness, serious disease, a terminal disease, I know you would do everything you can to get a cure. You would spend your energy, your money, your time. You would find whatever doctors you could. You would do whatever was necessary to, to save your child. And that's a worthy pursuit. Given what God says about marriage though, shouldn't we think that way about marriage? Shouldn't we think that way about our own marriages? Shouldn't we think that about one another's marriages? To do all we need to do, to do all we can to do by God's grace to preserve our marriages, and to make them be all that God wants them to be. As the band comes up, let me ask you, how can you take a step, just one step, to apply this? How can you take a step to guard your marriage better? Is there something that you need to put away that's keeping you from having a heart for your marriage? Is there something you need to forgive? Maybe your one step is just to say, Lord, rescue us. Help us. Maybe you need to take this message and go talk, go on a date with your spouse and talk about it. And talk about how you can work on your marriage or how you need help. Maybe you need to take a step of getting some help pastorally, some pastoral counseling with Pastor Jeff or me or Toby. Maybe you need to, to get with others say, hey, 
I know there's others out there who need help, and we are to do these things together. We need each other's help to get together and, and do a Bible study on marriage. I could give you some great material on that. To do together. To grow together. Maybe uh, if you're a single, your step can be, Lord, just help me have a higher view of marriage. Help me maybe want to get married more. Help me understand how this looks to Jesus and the church and to set my hope on that ultimate marriage. Whatever it might be, there are lots of next steps, but let's take a minute before we transition just to consider one thing. I want you to be encouraged most of all. I want you simply to have your sights set on the goodness of God in marriage. But let's think about one way to respond, one step to take. Um, maybe write that down or just commit that to the Lord. And then um, Toby will come up to transition us into communion. Let me pray for us and then we'll take that time. Lord, help us now to remember grace, to remember Your goodness and glory, to set our eyes on what You have. And Lord, help us to hear from You just one practical and simple way to take a step towards what You would call us to. We ask now in Christ's name.